everybody. Glad to see you all. Happy Ash Wednesday. I think that's okay to say. Happy Ash Wednesday. Um, if you have not been to church yet, then as I like to say, you need to get your ash to church because it is Ash Wednesday. Um, we have service at noon and then we have a few more today. So if you are here, then stay because noon's nice and easy and convenient for you. Those of you joining us online or anyone else, we're going to be taking ashes out into Preston Center at 12.30. And so oftentimes what people will do is bring those who may have some ambulatory issues or other kind of problems to, at, to Preston Center in their cars. And we can like reach in and even do it that way. So I will see you. I like to post up right in front of Susie Cakes because it makes the ashes taste even better. Um, and so we're going to be there in Preston Center at 12.30. And then we've got services at 5 and then at 7 o'clock tonight as well. The 7 o'clock service is sort of the full service Eucharist and music and all of that good stuff. And so we hope that you will plug in for that. Also, as we start Lent, we've got a few special ways that we are supporting you as you travel during the season of Lent. A reminder that today we start our new season of our weekday meditations. You can listen to those anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can listen to those on our website, whatever is convenient for you. All right, so like I always say, I like questions, so prepare your questions. Um, we're nearing the end of 2 Samuel, and so we're going to go over some poetry today, which is a little unusual. But before we get there, just a couple questions that were sent this week. Um, the first has to do with Ash Wednesday, which I think is always an interesting thing for us to talk about. Why ashes? And so, appropriate today. Ashes do, I think, one of two things. And it kind of depends on which denomination as to what they emphasize. You've got one idea that ashes represent repentance. So in some traditions, the ashes are really meant to show that we are essentially sinful, that we offer our, um, our ask of God for forgiveness, and we are marked as sinners who have been forgiven with the ashes. That's not exactly the way that I typically teach ashes, um, but it's a very valid way of approaching why we put ashes on our face. What I typically teach is that ashes are really a sign of our mortality and a reminder that our dependence is on God alone. And that in even though we will die, even though we don't like to talk about that, even though all will die, death is not the end. It's simply a transition. It's simply a change. And that through Christ, death has been defeated. And so the idea of not being afraid as we are living as disciples out in the world kind of comes to the very hilt. I mean, the rubber really hits the road when you talk about the great fear of death. And even that great fear is defeated by God's love. And so the ashes really are meant to mark us and remind us that although we die, our life continues because of God's love. And so either way, those ashes are kind of an outward sign of the faith that we hold in God in multiple different ways, however we approach that. So any follow-up question or clarity about that? There you go. She asked. Okay, so second question gets at something that was studied a few weeks ago, and I was not the one who did this with you. Um, it's a question that's quite broad, and so I'm going to try and reduce it down, but it's es essentially revisiting the concept of Tamar's rape and how it functioned 
in the story. Um, I think perhaps part of the question here is why it would actually be included in the story. Um, but broadly speaking, really what's the function? Why would Amnon have done that? Especially given that we hear that immediately after Amnon's rape of Tamar, Amnon felt no love toward her. In fact, felt hate or disgust toward her. And so the question implies my answer, which is it had nothing to do with love. Um, I mean, I kind of think, duh. Um, I hope that that's something that we all take away, that rape is really not an act of love. It is so much an act of power and aggression. And it is what happens when a person seeks to lord power or force or superiority over another person, regardless of gender. And we see that happening here, that in some way, although Amnon's described as desiring Tamar in a way that might be understood as loving, maybe, it certainly does not play out that way. It is much more of a power move. And we see the same thing happen when David escapes Jerusalem and Absalom comes in trying to kind of take David's throne, usurp David's authority. What does he do? But he tries to sleep with or sleeps with the 10 concubines that David left behind in Jerusalem. It's all about power and lording authority and aggression and power over other people and kind of claiming your power in some truly heinous way. And so I think that that's relatively clear. Does anyone have a follow-up on that before we jump into chapter 22? A topic we all enjoy discussing. Good, thanks. I didn't really want to talk anymore about it. Okay, so let's go on into chapter 22. Chapter 22 shifts us out of the narrative of the chronology that we have been leaning into. So genu generally speaking, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, back to back, is all a narrative chronology. It is really the story of the kingship in Israel. We start with the Israelites desiring a king. Saul is named a king. Saul can't quite unify everybody. So then David is anointed, but Saul is still alive. David waits for Saul to die. Once Saul dies, David becomes the king, unifies Israel, although only sorta, because different tribes are still fighting for authority, including the heir to Saul's throne, because David was not Saul's son. And then from David, we are going to go into Solomon. So the last few weeks of our study this year, we'll look at Solomon. But we're kind of closing in on the end of David's story over these next couple weeks. The last few chapters of 2 Samuel are not chronological. They're not historical narrative. He pivots to poetry. And as we know, I think, David is associated with the Psalms. The songs of David is often the way that Psalms is referenced. There is no way that David wrote all the Psalms, just no. We know, based on linguistic studies, a single person, first off, didn't write all the Psalms. And most certainly David, although he likely sang a lot and probably wrote poetry or wrote, wrote words to the songs, these were not written down for a long time. The Psalms are really a product of late or even post-exile Jewish writings. And so when you're just, I mean, just talking about how many generations, a dozen generations between when David lived and when these were actually written down, the likelihood that these were the songs David wrote 
near zero. Are they close? Sure. Do they perhaps contain a lot of what David would have written himself? I totally think so. But we can not be so literal about David having written all of these things. And the same applies here. Chapter 22 of 2 Samuel is essentially Psalm 18. And so if you were to go and look at Psalm 18, which you don't need to, but if you were to hold them side by side, they are very, very close. They're not literally the same words, but they're super close. And one, I think it's easy for us to say that it was included in 2 Samuel for a very good reason and then redundantly included in Psalms as Psalm 18. It's a good one. And we're going to do something a bit unusual. We're just going to kind of step through all of this chapter, maybe not every single verse, but I do want to parse it out because part of what we've been doing writ large is trying to unpack and become familiar with the character of David. Yes, I want you to know the action of the story. I want you to know the people, how they relate and what they did. But I really want us to leave this year being quite clear about who David was as a person. Because who David was as a person flavors everyone's understanding of the Messiah and also the first century understanding of who Jesus became as Christ not only Messiah. And so it's important for us to kind of play with this idea multiple times. We don't do it once and are done. We do this over and over and over again. As we get into this chapter, just a general note about David. We've said this many different ways. David is very effectively and profoundly imperfect. David makes a lot of mistakes and David makes some really terrible mistakes. And yet David is held up, held up as this paragon for not only the Jewish people, but it continues into the Christian world, where David is really held up as someone to aspire to be. And as we read through the actions of the story over these last few months, it's completely reasonable for us to say, why? Asking why this guy who is so messy, so messy, would be lifted up as an example for us is important. So don't let that question be shallow or cheap. Wrestle with this. I do think what we're going to see in chapter 22 is a very nice unpacking of why David has been lifted up as an example for us, someone to inspire us. And it really does come down to the simple thing that, and it's appropriate on Ash Wednesday to say, David was not perfect, but David was always repentant. We don't like this. We'd rather be perfect. We'd rather not make mistakes. We don't really want to say we make mistakes and we are repentant. We strive, I think most of us strive, to prevent the mistakes. And what David does is uh, not much prevention. I mean, David doesn't do a lot to kind of stop making the mistakes. But what David does consistently, almost every single time, is he admits his mistakes and is repentant. And I do not mean he is sorry. I mean genuinely repentant. When we talk about repentance, it is a physical turn toward God. And so what David does is he turns away from whatever mistake he made and he turns toward God. It is quite strong the way that David turns toward God. And there is a vulnerability in David's willingness to repent. That is really why David is lifted up as an example for us, because God knows we are not perfect, 
But if we simply acknowledge our imperfection, and when we make the mistakes, repent, not just be sorry, but actually try to turn, we're going to mess up again. I mean, David over and over again messes up almost immediately, but he is willing to repent again and again and again. And we're going to see that happen here as we go through chapter 22. So any general questions before we jump right into these verses? David, character, repentance. Yes. Wouldn't that have been a much better example for us, David, than somebody better? Kristen, ask your question again. Isn't David a much better example for us, someone who is imperfect and that sins and repents, than somebody who was, obviously not Jesus who's coming that's perfect, but someone who was a much better person that barely did anything wrong? And Yes. So the question is, isn't David a great example for us because he is so very imperfect? And I think absolutely yes, which is one of the reasons why David really is so highly regarded in Judaism. I mean, David becomes kind of the try to be like David. And we sort of understand this because in a general sense, we are seeking to be Christ-like in our lives and in the world. The problem with that is we have no hope of being Jesus. And so Jesus is sort of, it's all, he's almost too far away. I, I don't, I don't want to ever say to any nice Christian disciple, like, don't try because that seems counterproductive. But I do think Jesus is so far away from what we can actually attain. It can almost be defeating to us. And so I do think, although let's keep Jesus in front of us, no problem with that, let's also insert some people who are extremely messy. And David's just a great one to put right there. It's worked for the Jews for a long time, so it can work for us too. David and all of his profound mess. I mean, honestly, if you were to really let David's life sink into you, I think in a general sense, you might be a little less anxious, you might be a little less concerned, you might be a little nicer to yourself, because I don't think any of you will be as bad as David. I mean, it's kind of nice, you know? I mean, I, you know, and I sure hope that your life is not going to be as bad as David's was. And that's part of the interesting dynamic of David. We're gonna go through chapter 22, and man, if you were to just read chapter 22, you would think David had a great life. No. David is almost more in touch with his pain than he is with his success. And there's a bit of self-righteousness peppered in there. We're going to talk about that. But mostly, it's a whole lot of storminess. And we're going to look back at the narrative over these last few months. And I'm sure you can recall pretty much all these moments. But man, there were some really horrible moments in David's life. And it's not even David's mistakes. It's just David's life that was terrible. And David still, in spirit, writes the words of chapter 22. And that's what I think is so profoundly impactful for us. Any other comments or questions to clarify character stuff before we jump in? Yes. So much different 
Why is chapter 22, 3, 4, why are they so different than the rest of 2 Samuel? Um, the right answer is, I don't know. Um, the answer I'll try to give you is that First and Second Samuel, although obviously placed in sequence in the Bible, was written as one section. And so you almost might treat these last few chapters as the epilogue of the whole story. So if you were to take First and Second Samuel by themselves, then this last little bit is just the conclusion of that whole story. Now, we obviously go on in the Bible, there's plenty left, but it would have been handled as a single story, essentially. Um, one of the things I like to tell children when they get their Bibles in third grade or whenever I have a chance to talk with them is that the Bible isn't a book. The Bible is a library. And if we think of the Bible as really almost like a bookcase in our house, and we can at any time pull one book off the bookcase, it helps us to differentiate why Psalms and Job and Leviticus and Mark, I mean, why all these different things and how do they really go together? It isn't one book. It's a whole bunch of books that we just bind together in a single volume, but it's like carrying around a library. And so put that way, the end of 2 Samuel is just the end of that particular book in the library. And so if we take away the stuff around it, then I think it would make a bit more sense. If we were holding just a single volume and there was like an epilogue of some other stuff that was different than the rest of the book, we'd probably think, okay, that's no problem. And I think that that helps us understand why this might be just a little different. When it's bound together as a single canon and Psalms is part of that canon, it's an easy question to say, why is it put in both places? Well, because it wasn't bound as a single book until five, 600 years ago. It was just a whole bunch of individual books. And the redundancy of having it over here in this book and over there in that book really was not a problem. Does that make sense? Okay. Any others? Yes. When you said um, the songs were not really written by a lot of, not of them, but why does it cross out of who um so when I said David didn't write all the Psalms, why are the Psalms attributed to him? I think the Psalms are attributed to David in the same way that the first five books are attributed to Moses. Moses didn't write them, but they're attributed to him. Same way that we've got a lot of letters in the New Testament attributed to Paul. Paul did not write those either. So Paul wrote seven, we think. There are at least seven others attributed to Paul that he didn't write, but probably knew about, or maybe one of his students wrote. So it's it's like one degree separated from Paul. So it's not that anyone's trying to pull one over on us. It's more so giving something important the authority to have someone read it. So it's kind of like how, I mean, a, a modern example would be James Patterson. When James Patterson's name gets put on a book, people are probably going to say, oh, I'll read James Patterson's book. Well, James has established this entire bench of authors who co-write with him. I mean, James comes out with a book like, what, every other week or something like that? I mean, it's crazy. But most of the books that come out with James's name come out with a co-author. Well, I'm going to tell you what, with a few exceptions, that other person 
wrote most of that book. But it sure is nice if James Patterson says to you, like, I think your story is great. I'm going to help you make it a little better. And then I'm going to take 80% of everything that book makes. Well, you know what? I would much rather take 20% of a book that sells 5 million copies than 100% of a book that sells 500 copies. And so it's one of those things where you gain a lot by putting a name on your stuff. And so even though there are psalms that were most certainly not written by David at all, or psalms that came through oral tradition that would have been written by David, putting them together and saying they're David's means people will read them. And over time, it becomes more authoritative. So we haven't talked about this for a while. I want to say a couple of years ago, I did a first lesson on this. But the Bible, as we've inherited it, didn't really become canon until about the 15th century. And that's a stunner to a lot of people because you kind of think it's been this way forever. It has not been this way forever. At some point, one of the popes, I don't remember which one, said, why don't we actually say what is the canon? And the way they decided that is everybody kind of got together, all the different church leaders, and said, we think these books are the most important. Well, we think these books are the most important. We think these books are the most important. And they kind of told, totaled it all up. And there were some that just didn't make the cut. And then what we have in the Bible are the ones that made the cut, with the exception of the Apocrypha, because then Martin Luther said, actually, I don't think those should be part of that. People wonder why Martin kind of had this issue. Well, it's because the canon hadn't been established for very long by the time Luther said, well, then we don't want those in there. Like, they shouldn't have made it in there in the first place. So as we think of canon, we know that we've received books that people over centuries thought were helpful. There are a lot of other things that people just didn't think were helpful and they just didn't make it. And you can still find them. You can Google a bunch of stuff. You can Google lots of different gospels that didn't make the Bible. Doesn't mean they're not interesting. They just weren't prayed over and taught and found inspirational for the majority of people over centuries. All right, let's go. I'm not gonna have time for this if we don't go. Good questions though, I like that. Okay, chapter 22. Essentially, we have kind of ended the narrative portion, the chronological portion. Now David is writing about God. This is really about David's relationship with God, the way God works in the world, and it's gonna give us a lot of good meat to chew on. Let's start on verse two. David said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. We'll pause there. David starts off with a whole bunch of titles for God. He's saying God is this and this and this and this. David shapes God's identity in a very particular way. And these words may not line up with the way that we would describe God. I think a 21st century definition of God may not look exactly like this. Now, a few of these words may pop up because this became so influential in the way that people prayed and spoke about God over time. But I do think that over 2,000 plus years of kind of inherited tradition has not been able to shape away our desire for God to be sweet 
and kind and friendly and warm and supportive and affirming and all of the other things. David has a very clear opinion of God. David's experience and opinion of God is that God is powerful. God is strong. God is firm. That is David's opinion of God. And David does not really get away from that. In other words, David thinks God is God. God's not his friend. God's not his companion. God's not his cheerleader. God is God. And David needs God to be God because he understands that life is really hard and that we get caught up in lots of storms and he needs to be saved. And so this idea of God functioning as a saving vehicle, a savior, that's anchored right here in this kingdom period. Prophets are going to pick this up soon. Over the next couple hundred years, before the exile, during the exile, after the exile, prophets are going to pick up this idea of God is a savior and begin to talk about God saving humanity, saving the Jewish people in a very particular way. And then that is molded into the idea of what is inherited as the Messiah. It starts here where David speaks of God as saving him. Up to this point, God is not really saving people. God's present and God champions people. God might help you win a battle or God might provide you food or God might deliver you in a certain direction so you avoid a violent interaction. I mean, all that kind of stuff. But the idea that I am in a storm, I cannot help myself and God needs to save me, that is very anchored in David and his Psalms. And we see that explicitly right here in chapter 22. Why would it be so important for God to be a savior? If we remember when this was written, this was unpacked, it was prayed upon, it was sung, and then it was ultimately written during and after the exile. The exile being the moment when the Jewish people said, how'd this happen? Either we did something wrong or God is weak. Well, if God is not weak and God is strong, it's on us. And so then they began to create all of this theology around the idea that God is strong and we need to be saved. Our hope is in the Lord. We look to God as a savior. God is my stronghold and my rock. All of this is super helpful when you feel like your life is falling apart. And so the Jewish people were falling completely apart in the exile. They were afraid they would lose their entire culture and identity. Forget like an individual life falling apart. This is their entire culture falling apart. And the only thing they could really do is anchor themselves on this idea of God saving them. Let's keep going in verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of perdition assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. So we'll pause again. David experiences the world as this dramatic, huge storm. And David is in the storm, waves and floods and chains and snares. David is very dramatic and extremely expressive. 
in the experience of the world around him. Now, we know that life is hard. We totally get this. I think all of us either feel now or have felt at some point in our life that there's just a storm all over the place. And if we can imagine ourselves adrift, like floating in the middle of an ocean in a storm, we have no power, total powerlessness. The Jewish identity of being stuck is quite literally related to being pushed into a corner. There is an explicit understanding in Judaism that when life is really hard, and we, we might understand it as drowning, the Jews describe it as being pushed into a corner. There is no option. You cannot turn left, you cannot turn right, you can't go up, you can't go down, you are totally stuck. And as we then continue on in chapter 22, you're going to see that David's understanding of being stuck is resolved by being taken to a place that is open. So at this point in time, David is describing a maelstrom and he has no capacity. He has no capacity to save himself. This is critically important for us because we have so much capacity. We think we can save ourselves. We think if we just work hard enough and we plan hard enough and we strive hard enough, we're going to save ourselves. And David had all of this power too, and yet he understood he could not save himself. This is so critically important for us. At this point in time, 21st century affluent Americans, we've got to get this or else the rest of it doesn't make sense. David experienced storms over and over again. And if we just think back to the moments when God delivered David, they are numerous. God delivered David from Goliath. God delivered David from Saul multiple times. God delivered David from Israel's enemies and from the attacks of armies. God delivered David from Absalom. God delivered David from his own sinful, lustful desires. God delivers David again and again and again in situations that David caused and in situations David didn't cause. David has understood God's presence as saving, as savior. And he is now leaning into that in a very strong way. It is very important that we, I'm going to reiterate it 10 times today. David did not rely on his own strength. Verse 7 says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. David knew in distress, his only option was to call upon God. David, in all of his strength, found himself in a place where all he could do is call for God. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him a canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare and the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. We'll stop there. Ooh, that's good stuff. <laughs> what happens when God decides to act? David is describing what happens when God acts. 
God is God. Remember, David sets it out in the first few verses. God is not gentle. God is not timid. God is not your friend. God is God. And when God acts, this is what happens. The earth quakes. Smoke and fire and lightning and thunder, the entire foundations of the world laid bare. This is what happens when God gets involved. David perceives his own experience of God as being so profound, so all-encompassing, that there is nothing of David left. It is only God who acts. This is important theologically. Because David's already acknowledged that in my distress, I called upon God. So then when God acts, it is so overwhelming and it is so total that David has no part in the action. David is simply being saved by God, 100%. And he does so in this dramatic fashion. God is for David. David believes that, that God is for him. And the good news here for us is that we hear the same consistent message from Jesus. God is for us. And so we have been so enamored with our own ability for most of our lives that this concept is completely radical. It's 180 degrees away from what we've been told. We've been told we work hard, we gain. We work hard, we succeed. If you put your mind to it, and you give it all your effort, you can be whatever you want to be. That's all crap. Theologically, it is terrible. It makes us dependent on ourselves alone. It makes us seek self-actualization. It makes us out to be the people who need to save ourselves. No, that is not Christian at all. It's not Jewish. It's not Christian. It's not Muslim. It's kind of none of it. It's kind of Buddhist, but that's okay. We can talk about that another day. But essentially... We have been taught that we have to go find ourselves. We have to be our own champion and our own advocate and save ourselves. Y'all, that's, it's bad, it doesn't work, and it will make you a nut job. And so you need to hear that this kind of theology that has been used for millennia, this is really where Christianity anchors itself. The entire idea of Jesus is based on this one concept. We cannot do it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot find ourselves. We cannot save ourselves from the pit or the storm. We cannot get ourselves out of the corner. God does that. Jesus does that for us. That is so huge. And we're seeing that unpacked really for the first time right here. Let's keep going. Verse 17, God reached from on high. He took me. He drew me out of mighty waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They came upon me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. We'll stop again. As I noted earlier, in the Jewish tradition, the idea of being stuck was like physically being pushed into a corner. And so as David notes here, the idea of being saved is literally taken out of being stuck in the corner and put, as described here in English, in a broad place. In other words, when we're backed into a corner, we have no option left. 
We are totally stuck. We cannot choose anything. But when we're given all of the freedom to turn in any direction and do anything, now it's back on us. This might feel good, but it's also very theologically profound. And there's a truth here that I want us to unpack. God may take us out of the corner, but God does not then make us choose something next. God's only interested in the saving. God saves us, pulls us out of the storm, takes us out of the corner, puts us in a place where we can then choose again. And God does that knowing that we will choose wrongly again. That's okay. God knows that we are imperfect and gives us all the freedom and all the space, the broad place to be wonderfully imperfect. And why? Because God delights in us. How does that feel? God delights in us. In other words, God loves us and loves us for real, purely holy. God will not love us and make us do something. There is nothing coercive about God's love. God saves us and loves us enough to let us be imperfect again and again and again. And God delights in us. Don't you think this is why we're hated as Christians around the world? I think I need you to unpack that question a little bit. Well, because we can't be conquered. We can't be enslaved. We can't be, we've got hope. Got it. Yeah. So I'm going to put your question in a different context. As Christians, we have no enemies. That's it. I mean, if I could distill down a message that I think the third century, I mean, the third decade of the 21st century needs to hear most, it's that in Christ we have no enemies. And so all of the rancor, all of the energy, all of the fear that seems to be in us all the time, all of the disagreements, all of the I think this and they think that and I'm right and you're wrong and all the division that we see in every scenario of our life is so unchristian. And here's the evil thing. For most of all of those groups, they've convinced people it is Christian. It is not. Fearing other people is fundamentally unchristian. Because in Christ, we have nothing to fear. We have no enemies. I mean, you put it, we cannot be defeated. That was what ultimately convinced Rome to adopt Christianity. They could not defeat it. It was the first thing Rome couldn't beat. Because what? You're going to kill me? Okay. We just, we started there. I mean, there's no, no fearing death. Death's not it. Death's not the end. In God, through Christ, death's defeated. So what do you got? That's all you've got. I mean, all Rome could do was threaten to kill you. Okay, kill me. I mean, what really is the problem there? That kind of faithfulness means we cannot be controlled. We cannot be defeated. We cannot be put down. We have nothing to fear. And it's not a shallow, cheap, like, 
There is nothing to fear except fear itself. It's not that. It's, although that's not unchristian, it is simply this idea that we are not meant to only live here. What God offers us is life beyond what we see here. And it does not feel that way most of the time. I mean, the feelings are so problematic because there's so much that scares us. Fear is so powerful. It is the most powerful motivator. And so part of what being a good disciple is about is trying to wrestle down the fear all the time. And it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time. It's not a decision. You can't just decide today to no longer fear. Check. That doesn't work. It's your entire life wrestling with fear. Some people may wrestle more than others, but everyone wrestles. And it's a habit of trying again and again and again to not let fear control you. And so when you're watching the news and you feel afraid about something or someone, that's a moment that should trigger us to say, hold on, I really don't need to fear. So then what is this? And when you find yourself afraid for a loved one, or you find yourself afraid of a diagnosis, or you find yourself afraid over and over again, let that be a trigger point for you to say, what is happening here? And what is it that I can remind myself of? You've probably heard me say this, but I think for me, Sunday worship, it's only meant to remind us of what we forgot. That's it. It's not a mountaintop experience. I don't struggle on, you know, Saturday night trying to figure out some clever turn of phrase that's going to really inspire you on Sunday morning. I'm not worried about that because it has nothing to do with me. It's about the simple reminder of what is true. That's why coming is so important. And that's why when people say, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like coming or I didn't want to come or my child doesn't want to come. I'm like, as if that matters, that's not at all what we're doing. That isn't anything. We come because we need it. We come because we forgot and we will forget. I'm saying this to you right now, before we end this class, you will forget. I mean, that's just human nature. And you're going to walk out the door and you're going to go over to the Ash Wednesday service, right? And you're going to go over to the Ash Wednesday service and you're going to hear it and you're going to be like, oh yeah, that's right. Because you'd forgotten in the 30 minutes between being in the chapel and going to the church. That's, it's just human nature. It's what David is really dealing with right here is that we can be plucked out and we can be saved and we can put in a place where any option is open to us. We will still forget and choose the wrong thing. And God delights in us. It's powerful stuff. And it also means we do not have to be afraid of anything. We have no enemies. No enemies. Chew down that one for a while. Yeah. Okay, so when you're talking about fear... I love the way you started that, Betsy. You're like, ha here we go. <laughs> what? If you uh, substitute the word fear for worry, we would worry be the same thing. Can you substitute fear for worry? I use fear... As a, in the sense of motivation. So I think fear can control us. I don't think fear is the same as worry. I do think that worry is an expression of care and concern. I think worry and fear can bleed 
into each other. I mean, you know, kind of Venn diagram style, I think that they can overlap. But I am using the word fear in a more directional, controlling, influential sense where you may act or not act based on fear. You may, you may love or not love based on fear. You may choose to be kind or not based on fear. It's, it's all of that sort of stuff. There is nothing, unfortunately, we're made like this. There is nothing more motivational than fear. I mean, why? Uh, when, if you look at the way that we have voted over the last decade or two, and we continue to vote at higher and higher rates, I hope that we are not duping ourselves into thinking that we are more civic. That's not it. Fear has taken hold more aggressively than it has in our lifetimes. And so more people come out to vote because more people are motivated by fear. And if you're not, good for you. But if you look out there and hear what people say, it is the majority. I think easy 50%. They vote or they, they vote or they do not vote based on whether they are afraid or not. And how politicians stoke that enthusiasm is through fear. We have no longer, it's rare to hear some, a leader speak of what we are for. We are almost always spoken to about what we should be against. That's what's difficult about a church right now. I mean, churches do this. Most churches talk about what they are against. Most churches define themselves by what they do not agree with. How uninspiring is that? We should be for stuff. We should not be against stuff. And being for things then means that fear is not in control. Not worry. I think what happens is the overlap of fear and worry begins to part when we try to put the fear down. Worry is just because you love people. That's, that's totally different. It's when they overlap and almost sink entirely. That's when things can become problematic. So would you say there's not an increase in persecution of Christians around the world? Or is it just that we're more aware Oh, that's an interesting question. Is there an increase in persecution around the world of Christians? Statistically speaking, over what period of time? I mean, if you're talking in the last 50 years... I think you're probably looking at... You know, I would actually say... Yeah, 50 years, probably yes. 100 years, I would say no. Um, 500 years, certainly no, but 50 years, I mean, it's hard because we had, we had such an interesting global period of time where it was so static that it's hard. That was not normal. Again, in the truest definition of normal, I mean, it may have been what we would like it to be sure, but normal in the sense that it happens most often, not at all. And so if you only go back 40, 50 years, probably there's higher persecution rates now than there were, say, 30, 40 years ago. 60, 80 years ago, I think then that was probably more normal, like normal is now. I think that persecution, unfortunately, is more normal. It is more often the case in human history that some group is persecuting another group. But I do think that we have to keep in mind, we may use Christian in a particular way, others may use Christian 
in a different way. So I, I hearken back to um, when Northern Ireland was especially violent. Surveys of Northern Irish citizens and what factors they rate as their top priority about how they identify themselves, being Catholic or Protestant ranked fourth on the list of the way Northern Irish people define themselves. But if you were to look at political rhetoric and the way the world looked at it, and even the signs that they would use in the streets, it was always Catholic Protestant. It motivates people, even though the actual differentiation between the two groups, religion was not even top three of what defined them against each other. So I think it's, we gotta be careful how we use persecution of Christians, Obviously, it's happening. I don't think it always means the same thing in different areas of the world. Others? Yes. Y'all like this chapter. What? Uh, and I think you look at the Rohingyas and you look at the Muslims and Hindus in India and you look at all these different groups and you look at the Dems and the Republicans here in this country. It's almost like it's not just the Christians, it's anybody who's different from you, from what you think or who you worship. It's, it's just, you know, conflict. Different is scary. And it always has been. And I think that that's part of our challenge as Christians is to see that, you know, I say it all the time, Jesus is super inconvenient. Jesus invited everybody. All were welcome. Everybody, he ate with everybody. He touched everybody. He healed everybody. Everyone was included. And... <clears throat> Whenever we, because of Jesus, try to exclude people, he didn't do it. And sorry, you can't. I promise, I promise, I know the Bible. And so anyone like listening or you all sitting here thinking, oh, but it says, oh, Jesus didn't say. Somebody wrote about Jesus and said, okay, I don't think they were trying to be mean, but they're also not Jesus. And so what I, what I say all the time, if something in the Bible seems to be counter to what Jesus taught or did, we got to go with Jesus. That's being Christian. And Jesus just didn't put boundaries around most stuff. I mean, the only real boundary Jesus put around people was their willingness to commit to discipleship. That's about it. And when people didn't really want to commit, Jesus let them go. That was his real only boundary. And so that kind of means everybody's in, if you want to be. All right, let's press on a little bit. We get to verse 21. Okay, let's do this. I'm going to try and edit myself. Okay. Verse 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me against, according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Okay, we'll pause there. So all of a sudden, David's like, I'm great. Um... We need to balance this idea. I think our sensibilities are such that we like to not be self-righteous. 
I think most people are, they just don't want to show it. And so part of what we wrestle here is around the honesty of most people actually kind of think they're pretty good, but they certainly don't want anyone to think they think they're pretty good. And David here is just kind of owning that actually he's sort of, you know, a righteous person. Now we can think back, we're like, David? I mean, talk about lack of self-awareness. Um, David, like, must have forgotten all the stuff. Except remember what I said at first. God's less concerned with us making mistakes. And God is most concerned with us repenting of our mistakes. Now, in that way, David was quite righteous. David, most of the time, not 100%, but really close, when David would make a mistake, he would repent. And this is powerful because there are so many moments in David's life where David really suffered. And that kind of suffering makes his capacity to acknowledge his righteousness before God even more powerful. I don't have time, I don't think, to really get through the rest of this chapter. So what I want to leave you with is the idea that we're being invited in David's theology here to get a bit comfortable with being righteous in our willingness to repent. In other words, we can be proud of ourselves for laying our sinfulness and laying our mess before God. Like, when you go to Ash Wednesday service in a minute, you're going to start the service with confession. In Lent, we start the services with confession. The point of that is, put it all down. Actually put stuff down. Don't just say the words. Think about what they mean to you. Think when you come and you say the confession, what you actually are confessing. You're confessing your imperfections. Don't beat yourself up. Don't flog yourself. Don't hold on to all the guilt. But don't also glaze over it. Put it down and let God handle it. That's the whole idea here. You don't have to carry it out with you. Leave it there. That's what God wants of us. When God saves us from the storm, God puts us in a place where we can start fresh and then make fresh mistakes. But if we don't cry out to God in the storm, we're letting ourselves drown. And that's a very powerful message. I'm going to start next week by kind of finishing up chapter 22, but I want to note two things before we go. The first is consider the storms David was in. We'll unpack them a little bit more. David lost his child with Bathsheba, and he was destroyed by this. David's son raped his daughter. I mean, horrible. David's other son, or another one of David's son, tried to overthrow him and slept with his concubines. I mean, David's life was sort of a tragedy. Except in David's repentance and David's reliance on God, it became this beautiful example for the rest of us. It's not that David coasted through life and everything went his way. Horrible things happened to David at a level that I don't expect would happen for any of us. All together, all those things put together, none of us are going to experience all of that mess. And yet David still 
relied on God, believed in God, trusted that God could save them. That's the real example. And as we close out today, I was reminded at the end of chapter 22 of the commendation we read at the end of every funeral service. At the end of every funeral service, the priest will say at some point, you only are immortal, the creator and maker of mankind, and we are mortal, formed of the earth, and to earth shall we return. For so did you ordain when you created me, saying you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All of us go down to the dust, and yet even at the grave we make our song, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. We say that at the end of every funeral service, because David understood this. David understood that even though he goes down to the grave, he still sings Alleluia. And this entire chapter is based on the idea that regardless of what happens, we genuinely have nothing to fear. We have no enemies. Death itself has even been defeated. And we receive that fully through Christ. And now we can go get our ashes without that kind of fear because God has said it right. Happy Ash Wednesday. I'll see you next week.